Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Robert W. Sullivan IV is with us, and uh, his latest is Cinema Symbolism 3. Now, Rob, we were talking about uh, a couple of movies, Vanilla Sky, The Matrix, uh, Fight Club. I think you mentioned that they were all sort of examples of Gnostic films. Uh, but they have something else in common, and that is there's some 9-11 imaging in those movies. Uh, and, of course, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary. What's that all about? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that, that, that's what makes it even more interesting is all these, all these films, the ones you just mentioned, and there's some others, um, they all feature uh, subtle 9-11 uh, imagery, s- somewhat you know, anticipating uh, the event um, on the actual day. And, of course, you're absolutely correct. We're coming up on the 20-year uh, anniversary. It's hard to believe. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the uh, Matrix, and, again, these movies all have to deal with awakening to consciousness. A Matrix, of course, you have Neo's passport um, expires on September 11, uh, 2001. Um, in Vanilla Sky, the end of the movie, uh, the Tom Cruise character is taken up to this enormously high skyscraper um, in New York City overlooking the Twin Towers. And uh, um, in order to obtain consciousness uh, to the real world, he has to leap off and he has to uh, plummet uh, down. And, of course, when you see this, you're immediately, you know, recall the people leaping off the buildings, the Twin Towers, uh, on that day. And uh, th- that, that movie actually caught flack for that when it was released. Um, the director, Russell Crowe, was urged to remove that scene, um, but he didn't. He, 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 stood, he stood his ground and he didn't. And I, I think, I think he, I'm glad he did because it's, it's very effective. It's very poignant to see. Um, and then you get movies, other ones like Donnie Darko, um, that features a, a plane, an engine crashing through the uh, Donnie's bedroom. It cuts to an American flag, and uh, the director of that film, Richard Kelly, um, the, move, the movie was released about a month after uh, 9/11. Of course, this was filmed beforehand, but he actually blamed that scene for the movie underperforming in the box office. He thought it was too too uh, reminiscent of 9/11. Uh, the Fight Club is another one where I mean, you have this destruction at the buildings at the end. Tyler refers to them as Ground Zero. Uh, you have um, the destruction of the uh, of the piece of artwork, the corporate artwork that looks like the sphere that used to stand um, at the plaza of the World Trade Centers. Um, so it is it is unique. Uh, the The Patriot is another one, although that's not a Gnostic film. Uh, that came out in the summer of 2000, where not, where uh, Mel Gibson is making the chair at the very beginning. Uh, he weighs it; it weighs nine pounds, eleven ounces, and then he sits on it and it comes crashing down. Um, and then, and then, what what would also make some of this a little even more strange is is the timing, um, the, the timing sequence with this stuff. I mean, you have September 11th, um, two years earlier. Um, almost to the day, uh, which was, uh, I believe the date was September 21st, 1999. So nearly almost to the day, you had the release of Fight Club. So it's almost like a countdown when the movie was released. And then two years before that, uh, in 1997, this was September 21st, 1997, was the um, broadcast of the Simpsons episode, uh, Homer Simpson versus New York City. Uh, this is the one where Bart waves the, the money in front of the the magazine that has nine eleven on it with the trade towers. The, the trade tower serves the eleven. So that's what makes it all even more strange. Is it's like a countdown almost. Um, I mean, it's almost to the day. So yeah, I mean, it is this. It is this very strange overlap that you have. You have this Gnostic um, Hollywood's you know eagerness to put out these Gnostic films at the turn of millennium. At the turn of the millennium, but prior you also have them anticipating seemingly. September 11th. It's uh, right. Well, these and these were all obviously produced before 
nine, the actual uh, event of nine eleven. So the the director uh, was not placing deliberately placing these images in there. Or I mean, wh- what's what's your theory as to what's happening here? Sometimes we call it predictive programming. I mean, the idea that somehow they had foreknowledge is a pretty sinister, yeah, you know, right. cynical look at humanity. So that, but how else do we explain it? Um, I mean, there is another alternative explanation. I mean, sure, you can always say they had foreknowledge, but I do, I mean, that is a bit of a, a you know, a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended. But, um, you know, you could definitely look at, look at the idea of, of the theories of, you know, you know, what, you know, Carl Jung and, you know, of Platonism where the, 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 the creation, the making of the movie is a creative experience and the idea is such as it's, the philosophy is that such as it's such a, because it's such a highly creative experience, the filmmaker is tapping into a higher realm of consciousness and that these images are just being slipped in there um, unintentionally but very profoundly. Um, again, this comes out of the world of Platonism. This comes out of the world of Gnosticism. This is revived um, by European Christian mystics. Um, you can find this in the works of people like Meister Eckhart, uh, Jakob Berm, Emanuel Schwettenborg. Um, these are kind of the guys who are influencing young, who get into dream vision, um, the idea of prophecy, the idea of prophecy and creative thought uh, or, cre- or creation. Um, so that's one explanation. That's another explanation for it. I mean, and again, you know, it's, it's, I, I would stress also that it's not only 9-11 that this happens in. Um, I mean, the, the movie The China Syndrome, which dealt with a meltdown of a nuclear reactor, was released, I think, two weeks before the Three Mile Island incident back in, in, in 1979, 1980, whenever it was. Um, there was a cartoon called The Legends of Chamberlain Heights that about a year earlier um, had Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter crash. Um, so it's not just limited to 9-11 and these Gnostic films like The Matrix. Um, you'll find it in other, uh, in other films and other TV shows as well. So the, the purpose of, of putting symbolism and these different layers into a movie is it just to make is it like easter eggs they're they're put there for people like you uh, to see them and say wow that's pretty cool or is there something maybe even nefarious at work here do these occult symbols that are placed in these movies have a certain power oh absolutely i i think they do have a certain power because it turns the film once they're detected once they're di- detect- detected in the film it turns the movie into something legendary it it's really in my opinion um part of the motivation as to why these guys do it is it's it's creating mythology that's literally what it's doing um you know i mean here we are talking about it i mean here i am writing about it any time you are um I mean, I, I've always found that when, when these, when the, the, I mean, a movie that doesn't have any esoteric symbol or esoteric themes in it doesn't make it a bad movie, but the ones that do, I find, are always just so much more fascinating to watch. Um, I, I, those are the movies that I find myself drawn to watching over and over again. I mean, these are some of the greatest, you know, biggest blockbusters Hollywood has ever produced. I mean, Star Wars, Harry Potter, uh, these are all films that deal with archetypal imagery, uh, The Hero's Journey, which was documented by um, Joseph Campbell, the American mythologist. These movies are all just retellings of these ancient mythologies, um, and they, they incorporate it, you know, they, they place in it these extra layers of symbolism, themes, undercurrents, and it just, it just really, you know, pops off the screen. 
Um, it plays to both the viewer's conscious and subconscious mind. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, some, like I said, some of the really sophisticated filmmakers, uh, you know, really know how to use this. Kubrick's a great example. Darren Aronofsky, Aaron Ariester, um, these guys, you know, Robert Zemeckis is another one. Um, these guys, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, these guys, David Lynch again, you know, another one. Um, these guys really know what they're doing, and it's quite effective. Um, people talk about it. People, you know, are drawn to these uh, television shows, these movies, um, and it's no wonder that they, don't, you know, that they generate the money that they do. Um, people are hooked on them. What about the idea of a of, of film as a confession almost? You've, you've heard, of course, about uh, The Shining and, and the, the theory that uh, Stanley Kubrick was trying to confess in that film that he was the one responsible for filming the, uh, the lunar uh, landing, right. uh, the Apollo 11 landing on a soundstage somewhere in the desert because, it, it, you know, they wanted to make sure, not necessarily that the, the, the landing was a hoax itself, but the actual photographs and film footage was because it, it couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been shot on the moon. So we see all of this imagery in uh, The Shining. We see the little boy wearing the Apollo 11 shirt and, you know, Room 237 and all these different references. What do you think about that? Yeah, the the Shining is a is a really great film because it's really a study in. I'll get to the moon stuff in a minute. The Shining is a great study in repetition. Um, Kubrick repeat repeats tropes all over the place in that movie, and what he's conveying to your subconscious mind is that the Overlook is an Ouroboros. It's a snake biting its tail. It's a never ending cycle, um, and that's of course what Jack Torrance and and the characters are experiencing. Everything keeps repeating. The murders just keep repeating over and over again. The idea that Kubrick was including. Uh, this idea is, is, is not as far-fetched as it may sound. Um, you know, of course, like you said, you have the little boy with the Apollo going to room 237. Um, this is not as far-fetched as it sounds. And the smoking gun on this um, was a movie that, direct, that Kubrick directed beforehand, which is a movie called Barry Lyndon. Um, and that, that's kind of the smoking gun on this because he filmed that movie using NASA technology, of all things. Um, he wanted to film a movie... Um, was scenes that were lit naturally by candlelight, and you couldn't do it. Um, Any time you had a scene uh, where you had characters sitting around a table with candles burning, you always had to have an exterior light. It's not seen on the it's not seen on screen. It's you know behind the camera illuminating it because the candles didn't bur- uh, didn't light it up enough. Um, however, NASA had developed a lens that filtered light and enhanced the light where you could see it. Um, and through his connections with NASA, um, Kubrick got access to these lenses and actually used them to film Barry Lyndon. It's qu- quite remarkable, and it's um, clear-cut documentation that clearly um, there is a concrete you know, NASA-Kubrick connection. So the idea that back in the late 60s that Kubrick was retained by NASA, you know, like you said, on a secret soundstage in Nevada somewhere, which is actually seen in a James Bond movie, I think it's Diamonds Are Forever, um, where Bond accidentally breaks into the, you know, like Area 51 secret area and, and sees the guy filming filming the fake moon landing. Um, the idea is that they actually could have gone, but they couldn't film there. So, of course, the footage of them hopping around on, on the moon was uh, was in a soundstage filmed by your friend and mine, Stanley Kubrick. And uh, when you couple that, you know, with the idea that NASA, you know, liked his work in 2001 and Dr. Strangelove, 
and that the fact that Kubrick was using NASA technology to film Barry Lyndon, um, it's not as far as a stretch as it may sound. And what about his final film, Eyes Wide Shut? Again, uh, as a confession, that that uh, he was maybe the uh, appointed filmmaker for the Illuminati, and in this final film, he's letting the cat out of the bag. Yeah, that seems to be one explanation for it. I mean, clearly he is showing us, the viewers, that um, that there is this secret society, secret group um, that is pretty sinister, um, pulling the strings, as it were. And um, interestingly, of course, or maybe not so interesting, he died right after the movie was made, um, I believe right after the movie came out. And, um, yeah, this is the idea that Kubrick was kind of exposing um, this secret organization that was uh, sort of manipulating mankind, um, you know, pulling the strings, as it were. He does this, one thing that he does, one thing that he does um, and this is one of the reasons I like Kubrick so much, is he uses different techniques. One of the things that he does really effectively in Eyes Wide Shut is the whole um, uses of Christmas lights. Um, they permeate every scene uh, in, in the film, and he surrounds them with these, uh, you know, um, the sins of mankind, as it were, drug use, prostitution, tra- child pornography, child trafficking, sex rings, stuff like that. I mean, every time the Tom Cruise character is, is incorporating Bill Harford, is, in, is, in, is um, encountering, you know, one of these uh, sins, as it were, um, degradations. There's always these bright, gaudy Christmas lights present. However, when he gets to the Somerton Mansion, this is where the Illuminati's hanging out, um, there's no Christmas lights. And this is his, uh, Kubrick's way of telling us, the audience, hey, this is where the real evil is. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, something that... Um, you know, Kubrick, uh, I mean, it's, you know, you can break it down. I talk about it in, in actually the second movie book that I wrote. I mean, the one thing that I, I thought Kubrick did really well was that was when they're doing the occult ritual in Summertown, the the master of ceremonies casts the magic circle counterclockwise, Vittershins, that's black magic, that's not white magic. Um, that's something very interesting. So, again, you know, you know, when you're dealing with someone like Stanley Kubrick, you're dealing with um, a very sophisticated filmmaker. Um, you'll find... This, this stuff permeating things, not only in you know the movies like The Shining, Eyes Wide Shut, Barry Lyndon, but one of the movies I also talk about is Lolita, which seems to anticipate every movie he ever made um, after it, which is fascinating. I can't figure it out. But, um, yeah, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is definitely one of those movies. You definitely throw it into the uh, category of Illuminati cinema, as it were. And, and those, I'm guessing, those those layers weren't necessarily let's say for example the shining those those layers those symbols weren't contained in the stephen king novel kubrick put those in there on his own right oh absolutely um if you actually looked at some of the screenplays um that that kubrick um was using you'll see you'll see him making notes about it um you know, you wanting to repeat numbers wanting to repeat doubles uh having um repetitive tropes uh, in the film, yeah, I mean, this was all something uh, Kubrick did on his own, and this is one of the reasons why Stephen King hated hated the theatrical version of The Shining. Um, you know, King's novel is really a ghost story. Um, Kubrick's exercise is it is Kubrick's film is an exercise in repetition. Um, I mean, you have those that one scene at the end, or close to the end, where Shelley Duvall goes into the hallway and has the skeleton sitting around. It's actually kind of in my opinion, it looks like a corny haunted house almost. Um, but, you know, th- this was kind of the theme that, that, that King was emphasizing in the novel, and uh, Kubrick really kind of downplayed it. 
Um, Kubrick was much more interested in this whole idea of repeating things um, in The Shining, and that's something that's definitely in the movie that you won't find in the novel. Right, yeah, he definitely would take yeah, a, 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 intentional. a book and make it his own, make it his own. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.